calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello! Hello! Well, here we are at the top of a beautiful mailbag episode. Special delivery. Ding, ding. (laughs) Uh, We have a few special deliveries before the main special delivery. Uh, Jenny, we just finished the season-long battle of sexual tension. Do you want to tell everybody about it? Do I ever... Uh, tirelessly and beautifully bracketed by <laughs> the incomparable, the great, the powerful, the unstoppable Emily McLongstreet, the season five ultimate sexual tension awards <laughs> have results that are in. Wow. Uh, appropriately, we've got a three-way in third place. It's Anya and the two Xanders from the episode the replacement. Congrats. Congrats. Enjoy your place on the shortest stand on the three person uh, <laughs> winner tier that you stand on to get your medal. Uh, then in second place, hot, 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 hot. In my favorite episode, Intervention, it's Buffy and Spike. <laughs> Remember when they kissed on purpose? <laughs> yeah. It, I like I'm I'm very proud of them. They deserved the uh, accolades they were given, but I'm also really proud that they're in second place. Uh agree. Because in first place, make way, hit the fucking deck <laughs> in checkpoint. It's Buffy and her one true love. Power! <laughs> Huzzah! Congratulations, Buffy and Power. Finally, Truly. Power getting the first place it deserves. <laughs> well, Buffy and Power getting the first place it yes, deserves. An-, an undeniable combo. It's like chocolate and peanut butter. It's like chocolate and more chocolate. It's like Frank Here and comes that uh, any shepherd's stick. crook just to pull you right off the hey, stage. Come on. <laughs> Congratulations to everyone. Someone pointed out that there are three people in third place, two people in second place, and one person in first place, which is also quite <laughs> nice and tidy. 
Okay. Um, I have a whole bunch of fucking events to tell you about. So listen, buckle up. Okay. First of all, we are announcing to you right now today, our patrons found out uh, a couple of days ago, because there are patrons, we are doing a live taping of season six, episode three, Afterlife. We are doing that live taping on the internet because that's the place where humans gather now on October 24th at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Tickets are available now. You can use the bit.ly that I whipped up, bit.ly slash Buffy Afterlife, all lowercase. Or you can just go to bufferingthevampireslayer.com, go to the calendar, click on October 24th, and you'll find all the information that you need to grab your tickets. Tickets are on a sliding scale. They go from 12 to 20 bucks. If you're a solo person watching solo, snag a 12. If you want to throw us more, we won't say no. Uh, but if you are watching with a couple of people, the option is there for you, if you're able to, to uh, pay a little extra for those tickets. Uh, we're using Crowdcast. It's going to be so fun. Jenny and I have already bought our Halloween costumes for the taping. Yes. We're going to have special guests. I just, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. So get on over there, snag your tickets, Saturday, October 24th, 6 p.m. Eastern. Okay. I also want to tell you that we have dates and times now for our next anti-racism reading and discussion group. Uh, we had an amazing first session with Mac back in June. Uh, Mac, who you know now, who we, hopefully you've all listened to the last episode. That was a conversation between Alba and Mac. Uh, wonderful, wonderful additions to the buffering team here. Uh, and Mac is going to be facilitating a conversation around Mickey Kendall's hood feminism as our October book choice. We're going to be doing two sessions this time. Thursday, October 22nd. Uh, Mac is going to lead a conversation on the book and then we will also open it up to a Q&A. Mac's going to talk too about like how the themes in the book overlap with Buffy and buffering. It's really fucking great. If you have not gotten the chance to listen to Mac talk, you want to because she's real good at it. Mm -hmm. uh, the following Thursday, October 29th, we're going to come together once again, but this time to break out into smaller groups. Um, so you'll get to talk with, you know, six to ten of your fellow Scoobies about the book. And that conversation will be facilitated by Mac. So you can learn all about this at bufferingthevampireslayer.com slash just keep fighting. Those events are also on our calendar. Uh, they are free. Um, you can always, always tip Mac and we tell you how. And we, of course, are paying Mac for the time that she spends here with us. Wow. 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 Also, wow. In preparation of our uh, two-season kickoff, Buffy Season 6, Angel Season 3, Kristen and I will be joining the Angel on Top patrons for a group watch of Season 3, Episode 1, Heart Throb. That's October 10th at 2 p.m. Eastern. So if you are a supporter over there, please join us. And for our $10 and up buffering patrons, we've got a live streaming hang just after the Angel Watch and also on October 10th at 3.30 p.m. Eastern. We will be in front of video cameras streaming live upon the internet in various places for <laughs> an incredible length of time. Hooray! <sighs> Uh, yeah, and uh, Jenny, I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but you can find out all about all of our Patreon events also on our calendar, bufferingthevampireslayer.com. Just click on events. You can find everything you need to find. Jenny and I are going to be doing a bunch of angel watches with the Angel on Top patrons this season. Uh, we, have a, we, have a lot, we have a lot to do. 
It's we have a lot to do, so we should go. Actually, uh- <laughs> yeah, we're very busy. We've got bargaining part one. That's season six, episode one, coming out next week. The week after that, we've got the premiere of season three of Angel on Top in the main feed, our feed with Latoya Ferguson, the new glorious anchor of the Angelverse, and Kristen and I will be guest hosting the first episode and. I don't mean to whatever, but I've I've been crafting some new jingles for the Angelverse. Oh my god, so, you're gonna! It's I'm excited. One of them is about me, so I don't mean okay. to brag. Okay, <laughs> yeah, it had to. It always had to end here. On Kristen being excited about another jingle about her. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I we keep telling you all to buckle up, but I think Jenny and I actually need to buckle up because we're going to take you through this mailbag, and then at the end of it, we're going to take a short nap, and then we're going to be back, and we're never going to stop ever again. Because season Huzzah! six is upon us. <laughs> It's uh, me, Jenny Owen Youngs. Jenny Owen Youngs, how great to see you. Uh, it's also me, Kristen Russo, middle name Nolene. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Jenny, um, how have you gosh. enjoyed your long break in between seasons five? <laughs> LOL, 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 LOL. I'm on Zoom with this fucking woman every day. God damn it, and I'm tired. <laughs> We don't we don't like poke around too much in the comments and uh you know in the secret Patreon Facebook group. Like we we tend to sort of keep our keep our eyes over here in the podcast zone, but I saw I saw like the podcast posted the the second installment of the gift and someone said like, "Yeah, and they're coming back on the 7th, plus we get a mailbag on the 30th." And someone else was like, "Wow, they didn't take any break at all." And I was like, you're right. You know, you're right. When you're right, you're right. We intended to, but then life had other plans, as they say. There were just, there's just too many exciting things to make for now and also to plan for later. Uh, So what are you going to do? I wonder what you're talking about. Oh, we can't talk about it. Oh, secret, secret, secrets. But we have the opposite of secrets here today. A pile of emails. Answers, questions, answers, information, an Ugh. exchange of ideas. So many emails I sorted through that I have to tell you, you will get another mailbag pretty soon because I only made it through 106 of the 203 emails I had flagged for mailbag reading. Uh, you'll get a you'll get a sampling of, I don't know, 15 or so here. Um, but I have all 106 in my head. So you're welcome. And thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you to everybody who writes in. Jenny, we're starting off in a very amphibious place, which is probably the wrong word. Yeah. I'll probably be That's contradicted. That's definitely the wrong word. Oh, my God. Amphibious. <laughs> Get out of my way. Wow. It's about sharks. Well, it's about fish. <laughs> well, get out of my way. It's about fish. What's an amphibian? Amphibian's like a frog, like a little salamander, you know? All right. But like they- a, think of a... It, think of reptiles, but then make them slimy, and then there you are. And I'm like, and like relatively aquatic, right? Uh, yeah, I think that's part of it. There's like a breathing underwater situation, or a. Uh, okay, 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 okay. The point wasn't to define amphibians versus 
versus fish. It was the question. So, Jenny, you discussed at length, I think, last mailbag, um, you were trying to figure out if a shark was a fish, if a fish was a shark. Well, lucky for you, here's uh, some answers. Wait, can I tell you something first, though? Mm -hmm. Because I know you said the point wasn't to define amphibian, but just in case anyone is curious, like Kristen... An amphibian is a cold-blooded vertebrate animal of a class that comprises uh, the frogs, toads, newts, and salamanders. They are distinguished by having an aquatic gill-breathing larval stage, okay. followed typically by a terrestrial lung-breathing adult stage. That's so cool. <laughs> Modern amphibians can have it all. You, you probably you can't even tell that this is a podcast about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or can you? You know what I mean? Sure you can. Okay, so this email is from Bronwyn. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bronwyn says, are sharks fish? Short answer, yes. Longer answer. Within the vertebrates, there are three classes of fish. Jawless fish, cartilaginous fish, and bony fish. Oh my God, you did All such fish... a good job saying cartilaginous with just like no hesitation. <laughs> you think this is the first time I've said cartilaginous? <laughs> Please. All the fish you probably think of as fish are bony fish, right? Like you think of a fish that you like catch on a line mm-hmm. if you are, eat fish. Um, cartoon. Cartoon fish for them. bone fish. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Whereas sharks and rays are cartilaginous fish. They are definitely all fish. It's just that their skeletons are made of different substances. Nice. <laughs> there is no overarching classification group within vertebrates that includes all the fish. The three classes mentioned above are all on equal footing with mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians. <laughs> e- equal footing? Sharks don't even have feet. What, uh, what exactly kind of science textbooks has this person been reading? Uh, there are several characteristics that most fish have in common, though there are a few exceptions, and these include having a similar body plan, paired gills that don't disappear in adulthood, as well as fins. So a fish is any vertebrate animal that has those physical characteristics along with other things, but that would be too much detail. <laughs> I suppose you had to cut yourself off somewhere, Bronwyn, but I wish that you hadn't. <laughs> I love this email. Um, I'm about to take us from fish to clams uh, because that's nice. how you produce an episode of a podcast. Oh, yeah. From, from fish to clams, the Kristen Russo story. Am I right? You are right. Okay, I've got two emails about clams. <laughs> Hit it. Two. Okay. The first one is from Rachel. Hello, lovely hosts. When you asked in your last mailbag, I believe, uh, if giant clams are edible, I, and I assume many other Asian people, gasped. Giant clam, or himijako, I'm so sorry if I didn't pronounce that properly, is considered a delicacy for sushi in Japan and throughout Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands. In fact, it is one of the most endangered, technically vulnerable, clam species due to exploitative bivalve fishing. It's also been exploited for its shell and for its supposed aphrodisiac properties. The high levels of zinc were found to increase testosterone, and goodness knows... We need more of that in the world. In parentheticals, Rachel adds, I'm hearing the patriarchy jingle in my head right now. The patriarchy! Um, thank you, Rachel. And Julia, Julia also wrote in about clams um, and said said a few things that echoed Rachel's thoughts. Um, but then 
had also recently read an article inspired by us. We are inspiring people to read articles on giant clams. So you're all welcome. Nice. (laughs) That's queer culture. That is queer culture. Julia said, as I read through an article on giant clams, I became very excited by how they eat. An enthusiastic but not actually knowledgeable ocean science person. This isn't a real title. I don't actually know if giant clams are unique in their feeding style. So this might be old news, but it is so cool. Okay. Giant clams form symbiotic relationships with single-celled algae who live in their mantle, where the algae go through photosynthesis and produce carbon dioxide and other foodstuffs that the clam then eats. They are essentially vegetarian clams. Guess how fast I just Googled clam mantle. <laughs> Cl- clam mantle? Clam mantle? Clam mantle. Mmm. The mantle encloses the mollusk's visceral mass. Oh <laughs> my God, Jenny. This is Which a family is its internal show. organs, including the heart, stomach, intestines, and hey oh, gonads. Nice. <laughs> I love this fucking mailbag. I know. I started us off on a really big Jenny foot. I really, you know, we got sharks. Thank you. And hey, don't clams have a single big foot also? (laughs) What? Yeah. Hang on. What are you talking about? (laughs) Dude. Yeah. The clam has a foot, which is used to dig down into the sand where it can burrow. Kristen, Google clam foot and you will be rewarded. Yeah. <laughs> no. It doesn't look like your foot, but it's like one big <laughs> protuberance that like sticks out of the clam. I and look, it like that's I, how it like moves around. I'm you so can push upset. the clam along I, in the sand. <laughs> or use it as an anchor to keep it in place. Oh, oh, that little that little phallic looking thing is a foot. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, do you know that? I've seen that foot. I've seen it in real life. I didn't know it was a foot. I thought it was a tongue. See. And you were scandalized, but now you don't have to be. I'm sorry. This just really took a turn, you know? Like, little did I know that we would be talking about clam feet. Speaking of turns, it's mine! (laughs) Here's an email from Ruth, who says, Hi, Kristen and Jenny. I have a strongly held pet theory about Joyce's brain tumor that I wanted to share. So the monks did their monk magic to alter reality and people's memories. (gasps) I think I know where this is going. The alterations (laughs) must have been the deepest on Joyce to create her mother-daughter bond with Dawn. Oh, my God. We all know magic has consequences. And unlike Buffy, Joyce doesn't have supernatural powers to bounce back from having her reality and her very identity altered. So I think Joyce's brain tumor is a tragic, inadvertent consequence of the monk's actions. Meaning that not only Buffy, but Joyce, too... (gasps) died for dawn cheers ruth jauntily signs off (laughs) after dropping this devastating emotional bomb in our laps how dare you ruth well it was fun to watch you read that in real time jenny because i've had some more time to like think about it but i I would like to hear your thoughts do you like your your obviously first impulse thoughts i mean i think this sounds like very probable in terms of like the rules of the universe and stuff like that that totally checks out Mm mm-hmm for me i just like i think it yeah i think that like on paper ruth on the paper that you sent us via the internet it totally checks out and like i want to believe it but i also feel very resistant to believing it because i think like in my mind and i think in part of our discussion the like 
way that Joyce's death and sickness is situated is in direct opposition to magic. It is like the thing that is rooting us as the viewer to the fact that like Buffy, in addition to being the slayer and dealing with actual demons and actual hellmouths, also has a mom and people die. And like that's true for Buffy, too. So, you know, that's the only reason that I'm like, yes, but also... No, like, I don't want it to be a result of Dawn. I don't want it to be a result of, like, mind manipulation because I think that we, I think we take, like, a more powerful lesson from it and the show gets a more powerful arc from it if it's not rooted in the monk's magic, but instead it's just this thing that happened. Hmm. Okay, I can appreciate that, too. This is the (laughs) problem with having a Libra moon. I'm very open to everyone's ideas. Okay, Um, I am going to take us into an email from Amelia. Very important email from Amelia. Amelia says, in Triangle, your guest, Trixie Mattel, made fun of Jewish women for wearing wigs for modesty reasons. The truth is, Jewish women who wear wigs don't do it to hide or appear less attractive. According to traditional interpretations of Jewish law, Jewish women should cover their hair when they're married. That means different customs in different communities, including covering all the hair with a headscarf, part of the hair with a hat or a headband, or wearing a wig, and many other options, too. The idea is just to cover, not to hide. So just as it wouldn't make sense to make fun of women who wear clothes that make them feel stylish by saying that they're not doing a good enough job covering their bodies, and it would be unkind and anti-feminist as well, it also doesn't make sense, and it's unkind and anti-feminist, to make fun of Jewish women who cover their hair by wearing wigs. I love the show, and I hope you read this email knowing it's coming from a place of concern, yes, but also of trust. It's because I love your show so much and appreciate everything you both have to say that I feel comfortable writing in. Amelia, thank you. Um, this was a longer email uh, that, uh, you know, Amelia included in the email, uh, something along the lines of, like, I know that you had a guest on the show, and it's probably hard to navigate those things in real time when you have a guest, which is all very true. But I, I will say that in that moment, um, I think that we probably could have opened up more of a conversation because I think Trixie would have been there for that conversation. But I didn't know how to have it. And so to that point that you made, Amelia, in your email, like that was the problem is like, I think like I didn't know how to push back and say like, well, blah, 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 blah. And so we just didn't say anything. Um, and that's something that we're trying to get better at, you know, like taking a moment and like really pausing no matter who's in the room with us. Just like taking a moment, pausing, looking something up, challenging, having that conversation in real time. And not not saying something because we're worried about saying the wrong whether or not we know how to say the right thing yes exactly exactly and just being generally like more self-aware and and critical in the moment of like everything that's going on well and yeah 100% and also like in that moment even if we even if we hadn't been able to in that moment we were like overwhelmed we were like oh my god we're here there's a guest we're in a studio we've never been in before even if all that had um passed I know that I haven't even talked to you about this, Jenny, but like I know that I had a moment of hesitation about that. All I had to do was then look into it after and and figure that out in the edit or figure it out in the intro. So like we had plenty of opportunity to to have that conversation in Amelia. That's why I'm including your email both to to discuss something that exists in the podcast now, but also to say like this is part of the learning and um, we really, really are appreciative of the feedback and and apologize for including that without challenging it directly inside of the space. 
Okay, Jenny, you got a you got a deep you got a deep dive on Spike coming up, coming around the bend. Well, if there's one crevasse into which I must dive deeply, this would be, you know, in my top five. Uh, this comes from perhaps Cooper, perhaps Kuber. Hello, and thank you for writing in. Given the spike developments in season five, I did want to ask if either of you or any of your listeners had found anything specific from the writers and producers of the show about the nature of souls in the Buffyverse. Oh, ho, ho. Good luck, my friend. Uh, my personal takeaway has always been that a central conceit of this universe is that human souls make them fundamentally good and that for any human to choose to be otherwise means that either something is wrong with them, like the child psychopath in Angel, or that they've been forced by circumstance to make bad choices like faith. In that vein, demons lacking that innate good are almost completely centered around their own desires. For vampires, their thirst for human blood makes them by default evil, whereas many demons, Clem, Lorne, aren't burdened by that kind of hunger and can more freely empathize and shape their own morality. Mm. I always thought this viewpoint made Spike's circumstances more interesting since the chip prevents him from indulging in that hunger. Huh, and I guess that makes a strange parallel between Faith's early philosophy and the way basic vampires operate, want, take have wow <laughs> jenny and i record now okay. on zoom where we can see each other on video and she just did like a full cutaway like a zach morris to camera at me with that wow and it was quite amazing <laughs> um <laughs> it's interesting too that i wonder if spike's lack of a soul right like if having the chip implanted so late in his vampirehood mm-hmm. um me like has some kind of uh relationship to the fact that he's still doing a sort of like blanketly evil stuff mm. Wh- whereas like i wonder if like early on he'd had the chip uh put in like he, he would have had more of his like sort of residual humanity intact and that might have like shaped his behavior more differently totally totally actually the next email the next email is about spike too but i feel like this is a theme and i think that we'll wind up talking more about this because we already kind of had a conversation about um angelus and spike and like angel with a soul versus spike with a chip and who angel was before he became a vampire and who Mm. william was before he became spike and so i think that there's a lot here and i also like this email was really interesting to me because i thought well what is it about a soul that's so good like that is the thing that you automatically are given right like you come to the show like oh you you have a soul if you have a soul you're good but that isn't true there's so many people on this fucking planet who apparently have souls and they suck so bad so like what Mm -hmm. you know it, it it's the show and this is very true for season six as we get into it the show uses metaphors that are really powerful but sometimes like uses them in a way where it's so broad that it becomes a bit hard to understand like what are we supposed to be what are we supposed to be taking from what a soul is and what are we supposed to be taking from what a chip is and what are you trying to say about humanity and in some of the conversations we've been having about season six i feel like we get to this point where we're like i think they were just trying to tell a story i think they were just trying to have a good story you know like i don't think that anybody was sitting down writing down the philosophy of humanity for some of these plot lines but it's very fun to like then go back with our lens and look at them Anyway, I think that uh, Spike mm-hmm. is a Spike is a better vampire than Angelus ever could be. That is for sure, for sure. Angelus is 
deeply evil uh, as a vampire, and Spike is evil with heart. Mm. Do you think it's funny that uh, Liam started going by Angelus when he was a vampire, mm. and then when he got a soul, he was like, I'll just go by Angel instead of, I don't Liam. know, being like, I'll just go by Liam now yeah. again. Yeah, that's true. We, even when you first said Liam, I like almost didn't know who you meant because we we like so rarely hear that name. Whereas like William, we know, you know, we know that that's his name. Right. Um, let me get let me get us more into Spike, because I think this email from Grace is really interesting too. Uh, Grace writes in during Crush, Spike spewed off some gay slur along the lines of which I don't care enough to remember because it was shitty. You had a conversation rightfully shading his homophobia and touched on the toxic masculinity that is often unfortunately oozing from his beautiful pores. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we're seeing how you're leaning, Grace. Uh, here's the thing. I don't buy it. Based on what we know about Spike, being often the voice of truth to the Scoobies and often being able to offer perspective that none of them have yet because he's like 200 or something, it doesn't make sense to me that he would be homophobic. Think back to Spike and Drusilla, the glory days. I have a hard time believing that Spike wasn't getting with other powerful vamps while Drew watched. He's too fluid. He's seen too much of the world. And I think that homophobia is something he would laugh in the face of. I imagine him saying something like, that old bit, weak and scared men still on that whole thing. You know, you ought to try it. Been with a couple of men in my time. Let me tell you, Xander, you're missing out. Give up the whole macho boy bit. You're not fooling anyone. You know, I was just idly thinking about this to myself for no reason the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh... It just, yeah, it just, I, I agree completely. It does seem weirdly out of character. I just, I disagree. I disagree with Grace and I disagree with you. I disagree with everybody. Everybody get away from me. No. Um, well, <laughs> good thing I have Grace on my side. Well, Two against it, one. Because the thing, okay, so like, let's think back to William, right? And let's think about like what he was grappling with, with Cecily, right? He is trying to read her poetry. She's saying, you're not for me. I think that before William ever was sired, he was wrestling with his masculinity. A thousand percent. He was directly attaching his masculinity or his perceived lack of masculinity to the rejection from the woman that he loved. So I think Spike is su- all the things you said, Grace. I think he's super perceptive. I think he's super aware of the world around him. I think he's probably even had a good time sleeping with men in the company of somebody like Drew, who he knows understands like that depth of fluidity. But I think that given like the eyeballs of the larger society, he wants to show everyone he's tough. I mean, that's like a defining part of him. He bleaches his hair. He's a vampire who bleaches his hair, or at least at one point bleached his hair and now can never have new hair because it doesn't grow. Debatable. (laughs) Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I just feel like if Spike was being written today, it would look different. And not just because of the sort of like, not just because that's kind of like what decency dictates and like standards have changed. Sure, of course. Uh, but also because I think there would have been more of an investigation into, man, 160 years, we're not gonna even like get curious, you know, it's a lot of time to kill. Well, that's a very good point, Jenny, is that like we're watching characters, but we're also watching a writer's room that's stuck in a particular time. And at that Mm -hmm. time, masculinity was still very inextricably connected to 
being a character like Spike, whereas like now it's still attached, but it's not. We, you, we've seen characters who are beyond displays of like stereotypical masculinity, macho-ness who are queer or, you know, however they identify. So like we, we know that those things can exist in media form now in a way that we did not see at all in 2001. Yeah, and I think like the things that we do see about Spike that are like soft boy or like emotionally intelligent, mm. all of that stuff like would very easily translate in a modern writing context to less homophobic yeah. nonsense yeah. and more fluidity. Totally. I totally. Thousand percent. Or at least not like using slurs <laughs> yeah i mean those would be not here that's that much we can guarantee speaking of insulting people jenny the next email is about the two-fingered uh salute in the uk <laughs> whoo doggy okay here is an email from someone named elise or possibly alice i'm getting a lot of i'm not sure <laughs> A hundred percent how to print. I think Kristen gave me uh, all of the ambiguous <laughs> pronunciations deliberately. How dare you, Kristen? Um, also, if you're writing in and uh, mm. you are unimpressed with our in intuition when it comes to pronouncing things, Tell please feel free to, to include yeah. a phonetic guide. We're happy to to read and internalize that. Yes. Um, and because oh my god. Also, I'm glad you said that, Jenny. If you're writing in to us and you think that maybe that what you're writing to us will be on a mailbag. Also tell us what your pronouns are and also tell us where you're writing in from. I always forget to say that. I'm so glad that you brought all of this up, Jenny, because I want to say where you are in the world. Uh, it's very fun to like actually put a bunch of little pins around the globe when we do these mailbags. Well, at least said. I'm a big Buffy buffering fan from the UK. So haha. <laughs> One of your questions answered, Kristen. I wondered whether you were aware of why the British, English and Welsh in particular, give people two fingers as an insult. <laughs> I thought you'd both find the legend interesting. Okay, at least you had me at legend. <laughs> it comes from the Battle of Agincourt. 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 Between the French and English. The French nobility threatened to cut off the two fingers of every English archer that was captured during the battle by holding up their middle fingers and making a cutting motion. It's credited as being a big part of the success of the very outnumbered tiny English and Welsh force defeating the massive French force. Hell yeah. <laughs> Love an underdog. Give it a Google for a very interesting bit of medieval British history. Basically, it's a big fuck you. Frenchies. Um, which is an understandable sentiment uh, when you are in a life or death battle. <laughs> That's my editorialization. Uh, we enjoy it a bit too much. Big UK love. Stay safe. So that's kind of fun. Wow. So moving to an email from Cricket. Uh, Cricket writes in, It has always bugged me that Joss had faith say 730 as a hint that Dawn would be showing up in two years, 730 days time. According to IMDb, Graduation Day Part 2 <laughs> aired on July 13th, 1999. Dawn first appeared at the end of Buffy vs. Dracula, which aired on September 26, 2000, two days after my 26th birthday, by the way. Hey, nice. <laughs> This means that it was actually only 441 days. 
Don't forget that 2000 was a leap year between Faith's words and Dawn's appearance. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. <laughs> oh, Cricket, thank you for telling us. Now oh that God. is a bit of hell math, if I do say so myself. Hell math. Okay, here's an email from Jen who writes... I've been catching up with the podcast while on lockdown here in the UK, and something that Jenny said in the Sexual Attention Awards for Crush sparked a little bit of hell maths, plural, I'm British, <laughs> in my brain that I thought I would share with you. When talking about the final nominee, Harmony Spike, Charlize Theron, <laughs> Jenny said that they would be an equilateral triangle of human slash undead bodies. At a basic level, this would only be true if they were all the same height, but they're not. According to the internet, Charlize Theron is 1.7 meter, 1.77 meters tall. Mercedes McNabb is 1.63 meters tall. And James Marsters is 1.75 meters tall. This means that they would actually form a scalene triangle where all three sides are of different lengths. This obviously ignores the finer details of the theoretical scenario. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I think I would cross the line from nerdy to creepy. Anyway, thanks so much for everything you do. Jen, thank you for bringing this to my attention. How dare I? <laughs> you can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Okay, um, an email from M. Uh, M writes in, in the most recent mailbag episode, Jenny asked the question, should the body be expected to take responsibility for the actions of both Angelus and Angel? Is, is it the same entity or two separate entities? And it just depends on who's driving. In response, I want to introduce y'all to the concept of system responsibility. I have a condition known as dissociative identity disorder, or DID. It is caused when the process of identity integration in childhood is interrupted by trauma, resulting in multiple alters, or headmates, in the same body. It's a complex disorder, but I wanted to share how the DID community would answer your question about the attaching responsibility to a body which contains multiple entities. We, my system or family of alters, 
each take, quote, system responsibility for everyone's actions. This means when one of us fucks up, we all do our best to make up for it. This means if someone eats the ice cream that I really wanted and specifically left my name on, I don't get to eat more ice cream. Not an insult vampire, but still taking responsibility for actions our body took without my knowledge, M. Wow. Right? I thought this was so powerful. And like yet another, in a totally different way, like yet another example of how like you and I, Jenny, are so limited in the way that we intake something and think about it and question it, right? Like we only have our experience mm-hmm. and like the experiences of those closest to us. Um, and this email just really like blew my brain apart because I thought what a, what an incredible way to come at that question. Like what an incredible yeah. set of resources M is bringing to the table um, as somebody who, of course, is, as, as you say, M is not an insult vampire. Um, but applying this to Angel and Angelus, and actually applying it to Angel and Angelus, this is the way that Angel operates. He does take full responsibility for the actions of Angelus. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure that that's a blanket statement that probably some of you will be like, but what about that one time? <laughs> I'm sure there are some times. Right. But M, thank you for writing in on this. Uh, it it yeah. really, yeah, it's it's like a really, really incredible way to look at this question. Okay. Uh, oh, this is your email. I'm so sorry, Jenny. I got so yeah. excited. I Get was out about of my way, I'm so Kristen. Ahem. Well, this email's from David from Alexandria. Uh, David says, I just listened to your episode for I Was Made to Love You and had some thoughts about aspects of the sci-fi genre that are hinted at in this episode but not really explored, and I was wondering what y'all's thoughts are on them. I think there are a lot of opportunities to delve into some topics relating to robotics and AI that were missed by making Warren so much the worst. (laughs) The first is about the morals of trying to build a partner. The episode makes this seem inherently bad by making April seem like pretty much a sex bot who is treated like trash. But I feel like the urge for someone to want to manufacture a partner or manufacture love isn't inherently bad. I was wondering what your thoughts are on the ethical ramifications of less of a less shitty person attempting this. Hmm. Yeah. My second thought is a more common trope in sci-fi relating to whether a robot or artificial intelligence is capable of love. Kristen brought this up on the podcast, mentioning that April wasn't made to love, but just to obey Warren and think he is the best, which isn't really love. This is a theme played on in many places, from Asimov to Star Trek to her. Big questions. Woo. Because it, it really like the reason that the, that these questions are so interesting to me is because they get at the essentially they're getting at the root of like, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me no more. You know what I mean? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. I don't think that there I don't. Kristen Russo does not think that there's something inherently wrong with the idea behind wanting to manufacture love or manufacture a partner um, who loves you. Like, I think, I mean, the can you is the second question. I think you can. I think you can. I think you can. I think I think love is the most complicated thing in the entire universe which thereby puts it so close to the line of the simplest thing in the universe. Mm. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) I think like, okay, yes, April does seem pretty much like a sex bot who is treated like trash, but also April is not like an organic life form, right? Like 
we imagine does not have free will. Although she does kind of like develop stuff outside of her program, right. which is definitely a common trope right. uh, in sci-fi with the creation of AI and then like, you know, the AI surpassing, you know, like so you've got Cylons in Battlestar Galactica. Mm -hmm. You've got the program in her. I think it's so complex and so hard to say anything definitively about. But like, it's interesting that that we kind of like look at April and say like, oh, she looks like a person and she's um, having an experience with this guy who has like essentially created her that feels wrong to us. But is it ethically wrong for somebody even to program? Is it wrong to make a sex bot? Right. I don't think it it's is. Like, and and I have to say that like, I did this. This is a sh an email that I know I shortened. Um, and, and one of the other points in this email was kind of exactly that. Like, what's the difference between creating a crystal zildo and creating a sex bot? Like, where's the line? Right. When is it not OK? Like you're you're well, I would think you're not creating consciousness. Like, you're not creating right. life, which I think we probably hold above artificial intelligence right if that makes sense right and you're also uh, you know in the in the case of once we get to the buffy bot and we were questioning it there then the then the boundary becomes you're you've not just created um a, a robot you've created a simulation of a actual human being right who also lives in this exact town with you so there's a lot of issues and that parameter but it kind that that differentiation kind of reminds me of like fanfic that's about characters right like mm. i could write a, a fanfic about buffy and spike versus like writing a fanfic and this is like a real thing people write fics about actual yeah living people which is which feels like a different thing mm -hmm kind of like building a simulation of somebody who has rejected you and then yes. also like living in the yes. same town and it's a whole thing. This is a complicated question. I want to respect the robots in case they eventually uprise yeah. and listen to the pod, you know. Uh, right. I I think it is really complicated and I think like to the we just so when I when I do a mailbag, I go through as I said like a lot of emails and I and I pick out certain ones based on like so many factors. But also um along my way, I find emails that I am like, "Oh, I really want to like respond and just like thank this person for this message or what have you." And Somebody tweeted at us today, like, I just got a response to the email that I sent to Kristen and Jenny about the body, and I feel so seen by that response. And, like, like the, the thing that moved that person who wrote in was, was getting a response, sure, but also feeling seen, feeling like somebody sees you. And so that is just sort of starting to cross into this conversation for me because, like, when we think about what love is or what makes us feel loved, really at the root of it, I think for so many of us, it's feeling seen, you know, and I'm not talking just about romantic love. I'm talking about any kind of love. Like, you feel loved when you feel like somebody truly sees you for who you are and they appreciate that, you know, with all of its complexities. Mm. And so I I do think that there is an element of being able to find that in something that is not like that is programmed like you can pro like you ha you have to sort of believe a, a bit of the narrative i guess and until the robots take over but like you know for now at least um with the knowledge i have i don't think that the robots yet uh, you know what? i'm gonna stop talking i'm terrified now that a robot's gonna bust through my door but 
You're doing a great job. My point is that I do think, I, I really do think that some of what we seek as humans can be found in places that are not human. Truly, I do. Well said. Thank you. Well said. <laughs> wow. I want to take us from this incredibly deep, complex place to an email about Jesse. Remember Jesse? I do. Nikki writes in. This is season one, people. This is this is the kind of life we're living. I was always a little <laughs> irritated by the inclusion of Jesse in the first two episodes. He seemed like a pointless character to me. However, as I was laying in bed one night trying to fall asleep at 3.30 in the morning, we all know the insomnia thoughts that happen when you can't sleep, I heard Giles say a line and suddenly Jesse's character made sense. Xander and Giles are outside of the bronze when they're about to go in to fight the master's little vessel dude, Luke. And Xander mentions that he's worried Jesse is going to do something stupider than usual. But then Giles says, when you see him, you're not looking at your friend. You're looking at the thing that killed him. I realized that Jesse had two purposes. One I believe you mentioned when you covered this episode, which was to show us that the show was not afraid to kill characters. But the other is to explain some of Xander's, for lack of a better word, dickish behavior towards Angel in future episodes, and possibly even why he doesn't give Buffy Willow's message in Becoming Part 2 when she's going to kill Angel. Xander has to kill his best friend in episode two, and Giles made it very clear to him that he was no longer his friend, but a monster who could not be saved. Yet Buffy starts dating vampires, and he's supposed to just change what Giles told him in episode two? He can't accept that Angel or any vampire could be all good, because if he did, he would have to accept that he could have saved his friend instead of killing him. That's a Mm. big burden to deal with. I know you two weren't big Xander supporters in the beginning seasons, but I'm really curious to see if this idea makes you cut him any slack for some of the horrible ways he behaved in seasons two and three. I always believed he was simply jealous of Angel, and while I have no doubt that that played a part, when I heard Giles say that line, it really made me wonder if it wasn't just jealousy, but also maybe Xander trying to come to terms with what he had done uh, and if he could have kept his friend. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. It was 3.30 in the morning after all. Let me know what you think. (laughs) Wow, what a great email. Yeah, it's really, uh, I'll say this. I don't excuse Xander. I don't. Like that part, I say no. I don't excuse him for the ways that he <laughs> behaved in those seasons. But I do think that this is a really good point. And, and you know, Jenny and I, uh, we joke all the time. Uh, it, but jokes are what becomes real. But we joke all the time about starting this podcast again at the beginning. <laughs> Um, but what I think is really interesting, apart from like the spoilers and, and like being able to spoil now and, and how that will change our conversation. I do think that we've really st- like I don't think that in season one we were thinking about the truth of these characters lived experiences. You know, like I think we got there, but I don't think we were there yet mm. with Jesse. Like we were just mm-hmm. like, ah, Jesse. Oh, there's a dead girl in the locker. And all they did was cancel Jim. Like we were just like pop bopping around, having a good time, which is great. But I really agree with this email in every other sense, in the sense that, like, fuck, man, Xander killed his best friend in season two, season one. I didn't even remember. I didn't even remember that he did that. Yeah, well, we don't have, like, a lot of time, I think, to get really invested in Jesse, mm-hmm. right? For us, he's kind of a plot point. You know, he's kind of just something that, like, moves the story along and and does it does accomplish that that thing of setting up the universe as a place where anyone can die, right? Right. But for Xander, right, his experience of Jesse is, of course, very close. He's his best friend. 
we just we don't have a lot of time with Jesse, so it's hard to really feel that. Mm-hmm. You know, but but I think this is a great, 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 great point. And even if it's not about like, if I accept there's a good part of Angel, then I have to accept that like maybe I could have done something differently about Jesse. But also just like vampires made me have to kill my friend. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Oh, my God. So, this show. What is it with this show? It just. I don't know. I don't you know. You dig and you dig and you just keep on digging. I'm telling you. It Indeed. just goes on forever. All right. So next up, it's an email from Catherine M. who writes, I'm listening to your episode about the body, and I wanted to add on to your history lesson about the kiss. Amber Benson has mentioned in panels and interviews that in order to keep the kiss in, Allison and Amber were told to really go for it for one take. And when the network saw it and said no to that, <laughs> Joss was basically like, OK, how about this? And showed them a toned down version. I'm sure I'm not the only one to send that, but I wanted to email just in case because it does add another fun layer to it. I do remember reading do this. You? Yes. Yeah, I've I've it's clanking around in my brain somewhere, but I'm so glad that Catherine wrote in to uh to say this. I love that. This I love great. that tactic. I truly do. I don't I don't respect <laughs> Show it. Show us the cut version. I don't, the people I don't, have I don't a res- right to know. I think that if you're if you're queer and you have been uh, decidedly queer for long enough, you deserve to be able to see the tapes. Show us the tapes. <laughs> it's um, you know, it's not a privilege; it's a right. <laughs> I just like I I I appreciate the tactic of knowing that you're gonna face resistance, so deliberately going uh, farther than you even wanted or would have gone, wanted to or would have gone uh, just for the, I mean, that's like what a kid does, right? Like, well, can I, can I go, can I sleep over for three nights? No, okay, well, how about just we go to the mall? And like the whole time the kid just wanted to go to the mall, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sorry, don't mean to put ideas in your children's heads of how to get away with shit. Uh, Okay, this email is the first of two from Jenny's. Two different Jenny's and neither one of them Jenny Owen Young's. Nice. Well, you don't know that. I could have sent these emails. That's true. That's true. Uh, This Jenny says, Thanks for all the work, love, and care you put into giving us a beautiful episode for the body. I know it's been in the back of all of our minds for a long time. I wasn't sure if I'd be up for this episode right now since my mom passed away in September from ovarian cancer. But it turns Mm. out I was up for it. And I really, really loved the song, Jenny. It was such an important choice not to have words because there's something so primal in this episode about just honoring naked death. Words wouldn't hold it. It was perfect. I was surprised that you never talked about the choice to leave Joyce's eyes open throughout the entire episode. Before my mom died, I thought it was just an artistic choice to highlight the fact that this is a dead body and not a sleeping person to ensure the viewer's discomfort with confronting death. But watching it this time, it really ate away at me, like nobody thought of putting her to rest. And the last shot of the episode, when Dawn is reaching out to touch Joyce's face, I always thought she was reaching out to close Joyce's eyes. I still think that. And cutting away before she does is meant to tease you that maybe in the next episode, Joyce will come back somehow. But now I have a new thought about why they chose to cut the scene before you get the payoff of Dawn closing Joyce's eyes. I think it's exactly because having Dawn close Joyce's eyes, which would have been open the whole episode, would be the one moment of real catharsis of the whole episode. And Joss didn't want to let us have that. 
especially as the ending. Dawn finally gets to have the moment with Joyce's body that she's been wanting the whole episode, and will see her close Joyce's eyes and put her mom to peace, and then Buffy and Dawn will hold each other and cry, and it will feel like an ending, like they've both finally accepted what's happened, and they and we get a modicum of closure. But there is no ending when someone dies. It doesn't get tied up with a neat little bow, and that's why it had to end that way. So much love to both of you from Brooklyn. The co-op says hey to. <laughs> this is a beautiful email, yeah? You'll have to excuse me. <laughs> We've been asking you to get goggles for so long now. I know. I really need to get some pod goggles. Uh, so I stopped getting things in my eye. <laughs> what a great email. So powerful. So thank you, Jenny, for sending this in. It's really, truly powerful. Um, and hey, Jenny Owen Youngs, thank you for that song that you and Saul Simon McWilliams wrote together. Uh, there are a handful of songs in these five seasons of songs that truly make me real with their beauty. And that is definitely one of them. So thanks for that. All hail Saul. He did such a beautiful <laughs> job. Oh, wow. I um, really. Oh, it looks like. I really turned us on a hard corner here. You're welcome. Uh, yes. Eric, thank you for your clothed nude i have received it <laughs> i'm looking at it as i speak and i really appreciate it i don't remember. how many clothed nudes do you have in the, I, in the I buffering don't even inbox know. i got a, i don't even remember when you asked for people to submit their clothed nudes but i <laughs> i got a bunch at the start and then there was a lag but like everyone it's like as the new listeners sort of like get there you know i'll just get like a random <laughs> clothed nude and it always so makes me... the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> truly truly it always makes me cackle i'm sure that we will now see an uptick in clothed nudes and i'm ready for them <laughs> excellent and hey you don't have to just send a still photograph if you send uh, a moving photograph a moving clothed nude then it will be the gift that keeps on gifting wow okay jenny that was the daddiest joke of all dad jokes <laughs> so you agree i'm daddy so you admit <laughs> wow. it Gotta go right into this next email. Oh, this is a good one. This is a very uh, Jenny science-y email uh, from Jenny. A Jenny email for Jenny. Great. Uh, I am here, Jenny says, to fill the deep void in your lives that came from not understanding why Dracula's list of turn-ons included loans. I was just re-listening to that episode of the pod while making chicken soup because it makes me so very happy. And it was my first live show. The point is that I was listening today, not for the first time, nor the second. And for some reason, I was paying closer attention to this one tiny throwaway moment where Kristen was recounting the list of Dracula's turn-ons as stated by Willow. Among other things, there was some confusion about whether she said loans. And why would Dracula be turned on by loans? Well, let me tell you. As someone who has had a great earth science teacher in high school, I am 100% confident that Dracula's final turn-on is loams with an M and not loans with an N. Loams are types of dirt that are made up of clay, silt, and sand in various proportions and are generally considered the most ideal for growing things. Basically, it's just a fancy word for dirt. And we all know how Dracula feels about his special dirt. Just ask the dude in the rain slicker. That is definitely what that was about. And now you can finally sleep a night without being tormented by the question of Dracula's loan and credit history. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> wow. This is so great, Jenny. What's really, I'm so glad that you wrote this. I'm ha experiencing some cognitive dissonance because I thought that we had this whole conversation 
in the episode. Maybe I just woke up in the middle of the night some torturous evening thereafter and was like, silt, sand, loam, 10th grade science with Mr. Malcolm uh, and, and never brought it to the pod table. Maybe I just dreamed that I figured it out. Maybe I'm experiencing deja vu for no reason. Uh, me, yeah, but- I don't remember, but you know me. I'm a goldfish, so you could have told me yesterday, three days ago, seven days ago. I would have forgotten. So, your emails about uh, loam are always welcome here. Please do not hesitate. <laughs> we welcome them with open arms. <sighs> Now, oh, if this, is our, this is our final email, Jenny. I picked it with, with an explicit purpose. So I want you to know it's our final email. I want you to read it. You probably need goggles. Okay. Oh, no. Here's our final email. It's from Billy. Billy says, Dear Jenny and Kristen. Oops. Billy actually said, Dear Kristen and Jenny, but my mind just autocorrected <laughs> it. <laughs> Fair. I wanted to write to you to say thank you. I came to buffering around the beginning of your run. And I have been an avid listener ever since. In December 2018, I hit the lowest and most confusing point of my life, struggling with my gender identity and finally accepting the fact that I was not a man after trying and failing for 33 years. I came out as trans that month, and I have been living my true life as the woman I was meant to be ever since. It hasn't been easy. It's been messy and it's cost me a lot to get here, but I know I wouldn't trade a single second of it for anything in the world. Your podcast was one of a million things that cracked my egg, and I'm so glad it did. Anyway, I hope you see this, and I hope you know you made a difference in this Canadian trans girl's life. I love you both, and I can't wait to listen through the podcast to the end of Buffy and Beyond if you choose to go beyond. I hope that one day I will be able to meet you and to thank you in person. But until that time, thank you. And uh, (laughs) Billy S. Thanks, Billy. (sighs) So... Yeah, thank you. First of all, thank you, Billy, for writing this into us. And like, what a fucking thing to be even the smallest piece of a journey that is this powerful. And I put it here, Jenny, as the last email because, you know, I think that we are in a very particular time in the universe um, and things are very big and very scary and very overwhelming. And it's hard to know day to day, like, why? Why? You know? And so, Billy, I had read your email when it came through. And so I I was reading it for the second time today when I was putting this together. And it just hit me in a different way today than when I had originally received it, because I thought there are people all over this world who are like figuring out who they are. And like, that is something that no one can ever take from us, right? Like that journey is mm-hmm. something that is powerful and beautiful and endless. Like it, it just exists for all time, no matter where we are, no matter what fire is burning, literally or figuratively. Um, there are people all over who are for the first time, to use your words, Billy cracking that egg. And that is just, mm. it's just so powerful and beautiful. And I thought it would be like a good place to leave us all uh, as we look to the precipice of season six. <sighs> yeah. You said it. I said it, didn't I? Is precipice the right word? Is that, is that, it's a, the edge, but it's supposed to be the beginning. Well, a precipice is a very steep rock face or cliff, especially a tall one. <laughs> well, it feels like season six. Yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs>
Season five. Wow. You know, uh, I know that we'll, I'm sure, be talking about season five a ton more. I know that, like, at this point, all the seasons are, like, just in a spin cycle with each other. But um, what a what a fucking journey this season has been. And thank you Indeed. all for your fucking emails. Please. I, I, I was very much joking at the beginning when I said, stop sending emails. There's too many. Don't ever stop sending emails. You can email us at bufferingthevampireslayer at gmail.com. Uh, we do mailbags as many times as we can and as many times as it calls for uh, by the volume over here. And uh, it's just wonderful to hear from you. It's why we do it. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. You know, the next time we talk to everybody, Jenny, it's for bargaining part one. <laughs> Good Lord. Get out of my face with that shit. <laughs> I can't possibly. Oh, I couldn't possibly. Um <laughs> Well, I'm going to run to the hills and hide there until the beginning of season six. So till next time. Yeah. Mailbags. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.